This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Bigger Picture on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon and welcome to Front Row under the MCO where we um, give you our daily recommendations of things that, um, all things arts, culture and entertainment that you can consume while you're staying safely at home. So if you have things that you are doing that are exciting or fun that we should check out, you can tweet us at BFM Radio. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. We'll check them out and uh, maybe talk about them on some of our future shows. Mm-hmm. But um, for our first recommendation today, Suan? That's right. So we are trying to... Uh, so we'll be recommending something a bit different today. We'll be uh, exploring the British Museum. So not physically, mm-hmm. since um, the museum is closed due to COVID-19 measures in the UK. But, you know, the exhibits and the artefacts are still accessible to the public via an interactive map that has actually been set up in collaboration with the Google Cultural Institute. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting way of sort of navigating the artefacts mm. that are available. And we'll be sharing some of our experiences, how we found the interactive map. And if you are on your laptop, you can also also try it out yourself. The site is britishmuseum.withgoogle.com and then you can, you know, explore, look at look at how it is. You can share your experiences with us as well. But since we will be talking about the history behind objects exhibited in the British Museum, here's a brief history of the museum itself. Mm, I feel so official. Located in London, the British Museum is one of the world's best known and most visited museums. Um, the museum officially opened its doors in 1759 and has actually remained open every days since, only with the exception of the two world wars and the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So here's a short clip of former museum director Neil McGregor explaining the purpose behind the British Museum and uh, painting a bit of a picture of what it was like in the early years. The purpose of the British Museum, the, the constant purpose, when Parliament created the museum in 1753, was perfectly simple. Every citizen was to be able to explore the whole world in one building. Uh, in Montague House, in the building on this site, which Parliament bought in the 1750s, were to be gathered things from all around the world. The collection was to be aimed at universality, and it was to be open free of charge to all studious and curious persons, native and foreign. Perfectly simple. whole world could study the whole world in one building in London. That remains the purpose. That's what it's about. It's one of the very few buildings anywhere in the world where you could even think of studying the world, thinking about the whole world. Certainly the only place in Europe where the whole world is still under one roof. 1750s, the only way you could think of this was really as a private house. And what the British Museum was, was effectively the library of a gentleman's house where you had prints and drawings, you had coins, you had antiquities, you had everything that books, of course, that let you think about the world. And so they bought a private house, the Duke of Montague's house on the edge of London, and decided that anybody could ask to come to see it. You simply had to write to ask, and an appointment would be made, and you'd get your card. And it would tell you when you could come to see the collection, Uh, when you could call on it, and it reminded you very firmly that this was in no sense to be a monetary transaction and no money was to be given to the servants. (laughs) And... uh, Which is still the case today. Um, (laughs) And you were received at the house, as you expect, by the housekeeper, 
And here is the first employee of the British Museum, Mary Bygrave, um, who let you in. And then you were taken round uh, by cu the, the curator. That was then. It was totally revolutionary. The idea of a collection that the citizens could see as of right whenever they chose in the terms then prevailing. Everything changed, of course, after 1815. Uh, the new post-Napoleonic view of how a society should organise public collections. And Montague House was pulled down and the new building put up, you know, today. And open to everybody and everything was here. So many people actually also visit the museum for the architecture itself, mm. you know, um, and that was and, and that's the second building which was designed by Sir Robert Smirk. So the museum is a Greek revival style um, building. It has four vast wings. It has 43 Greek temple inspired columns, a triangular pediment and enormous steps up front. So it's really not something that you would expect to see in central London in a bustling city. Yeah. And to a certain extent, you know, you can still appreciate some of the architecture from the comforts of your own home. And that's because the museum is the world's largest indoor space on Google Street View. So you can um, head on there and make your way around the galleries. You can view the artifacts on exhibit from the famous Rosetta Stone to the Parthenon sculptures and even the Aztec Serpent. Mm, so I didn't realise that um, until very recently that Google Street View did this. So mm. the British Museum is not the only museum that has Google Street View that's right. inside the museum. So that's kind of a cool um, merging of that technology mm. with uh, with you know the museum going culture. Um, the museum's collections um, actually began with the personal collection of Sir Hans Sloan, um, who was a physician and also president of the Royal Society. He basically amassed a huge collection of more than 80,000 natural and artificial rarities, um, 40,000 books and manuscripts, as well as 32,000 coins and medals. Um, this collection was then purchased for the public and became part of the museum's collections. So up till now, the museum's collection has continued to grow to about 8 million objects, spanning, you know, something like two million years of human history mm. and curators continue to acquire objects today and they're actively researching the collections including the circumstances in which some of these objects were originally acquired. Yeah, and, and you can still sort of view these objects and that's where the interactive tour comes in. You can have a closer look at the artefacts. Um, you can understand the history behind it, where it was from, what's the significance of them. And, and I guess it's, it's something added on to that virtual tour on Google Street View, right? Because that's what you can do with that is sort of look at your mm. surroundings, but you can't necessarily sort of have a close look at the artefact itself. And so this um, interactive tour project was actually started back in 2015 by both the British Museum and Google. And part of this project involved taking footage off um, for the industry view, but also involved a Museum of the World microsite. And that's what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, britishmuseum.withgoogle.com. And this was a way for them to sort of bridge that gap to not only have the academic audience online, but also get the general public on board as well, who might find an interactive of map sort of more intriguing and navigable mm. so I really liked the experience of this mm -hmm. um, and you know what I, I what I what caught my eye immediately when I logged in was when you open up the site, you essentially see this timeline mm. and it stretches from, you know, 2 billion BC uh, to 82,000 present day. Um, and that timeline is also broken up into uh, five columns. And that's the uh, that's Africa, the Americas, Asia, Europe and Oceania. And uh, each column then has these like colored dots that stretch across the timeline and they represent particular objects um, that are in the British Museum. Mm. And uh, because of the timeline, you can see which period they're from That's right. and what's really cool about it um, is when you click on each object they kind of um 
they have these lines that link from that particular object to other objects across the timeline. And as you kind of follow these links, um, you can click on, um, you know, each object, you can find more information on that artifact. Um, and then when you do, there are images of that object with a short history, um, you know, an audio clip from the curator from that department who talks about the significance of it. Um, and, you know, if you're a geography nut, you can also click on um, a little section, uh, which then takes you to the to a map of the world and pinpoints where exactly that artifact was from or I suppose where it was found. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I really just found this very interesting as a concept, right? So let's first use the Rosetta Stone as an example. You know, it is one of the most famous objects in the museum and it's actually sort of a broken part of a bigger stone slab. Mm. And so a message is carved into it which is written in three types of script and two like uh, in two languages and three types of scripts. And that was an important part. And, and the stone itself was an important part in helping experts learn how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs. So when I stumbled upon this particular dot in the um, in this timeline, right, um, that it, so there's a short description written about the Ptolemaic era during which it was created, how you know the people who initially found it, how how that happened, how it came to be in the British Museum, you know when it was um, exhibited, things like that, and alongside that, here's that short audio clip that plays, uh, narrated by Eleanor. Elena Rigalski, who's responsible for the papyrus collection at the British Museum. The Rosetta Stone is a centerpiece in our collection because of its historical value, but also because of its major contributions to scientific research, to the field of languages, language studies, and Egyptology in particular. The stone is therefore very much a symbol of pushing research boundaries, a principle that the museum is very committed to, but it also sends another very important message. It connects cultures. The fact that one priestly decree was written down in three different scripts representing two different languages may seem unique to us but it was probably very common to the ancient egyptians the egyptians already experienced a lot of foreign rule they already had a kushite dynasty a persian dynasty and a syrian dynasty so the population at the time was very much used to being exposed to different languages, to different cultures. It was very much a multicultural society. From the second millennium BC onwards, already Egypt witnessed an influx of migration from neighboring countries. Traders, builders, travelers, diplomats all passed through the country, bringing their language, their art, their literature with them. So it was very much an open society, and I think this is what this stone also represents. It is famously the object that helped us cracking the code of how ancient Egyptians made their language visible. So I, I just really found this really fascinating when uh, I found this really fascinating when I stumbled upon this. There's something about when you're using that interface, you know, it makes it seem like you're scrolling through time, you mm -hmm. know, all the way back to millions and hundreds and thousands of years. You can see the different um, different objects that are available at the museum. And I find it quite easy to navigate. I loved how, um, you know, firstly, it's divided by these categories, right? Mm -hmm. Other than the regions, they also have art and design, living and dying power and identity, religion and belief, and trade and conflict. And uh, when you click on each of those categories, I actually like seeing how those items are linked to each other. Mm. So for instance, you may click on a religious object from the Africas in, um, I don't know, um, you know, maybe 2000 years ago. And then you might find that it's somehow in ex you know linked to something in Europe and Asia. And you kind of follow those lines. And the way the, the website has these little sounds that play when you click on 
on different mm. links. Um, it's quite gamey in that sense. Um, but I also think that that's what makes the online experience worth trying. And, and that's why I like this website a lot more than other so-called interactive experiences that museums or galleries um, are offering. Mm. And there's something very simple about it as well, because it's not just, it's, you know, they're not providing you with lengthy explanations, long audio clips. It's all quite simple and short and snappy, mm-hmm. sort of similar to what you would experience in a museum when you read those small um, small placards next to yeah. an exhibit. So it, it, to me, it sort of gives you somewhat that experience of walking around a museum, except that you're not exercising. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you could hold an iPad and walk around your house. Oh, th- that might actually be a good sort of mimic, mimicking yes. like how yeah. your experience exists. Yeah, but it, I think it's just interesting because in a museum, you know, you might have to travel from one part of the museum. You might have to walk from one part of the museum to another to see different um, aspects that you like and then not necessarily understanding those links like you said Shamila yes. whereas here it's it's not always that clear but at least you know there's sort of that idea of oh look this is interesting mm. and sort of it gets your attention when you might not necessarily you might go to a museum and think I only want to visit this department but here you can sort of visit other departments and you might actually find something that you are interested in yes um, I mean it's 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 not uh, a replacement for the actual museum experience. But I really think that what the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us is how easily these privileges of things like travel mm-hmm. and, and um, visiting you know, a museum in a different country can be taken away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think that um, you know, initiatives like this makes this wealth of information accessible, not just to people like us who currently can't travel, but to people who may not have that access otherwise either. That's right. Um, So I think this is a great way to um, experience it in a way that isn't just tokenistic. Yes. Um, Well, we do have to... um leave it at that for this segment but uh, do you want to repeat again where they can check out the museums one? Yes, so you all you have to do is um, type in britishmuseum.withgoogle.com and then that should bring you right to the interactive timeline and you can just have fun. Yeah, so let us know if you do that. Um, you can tweet us at BFM Radio, you can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Uh, we do need to take a quick break and we'll be back shortly with our next suggestion. This is um, Front Row Under the MCO, BFM 89.9. Bodacious, fantastic, Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Front Row Under the MCO. I'm Sharmila Ganesan together with Lim Su An. So before the break, we suggested that you might want to take an interactive tour of the British Museum. Uh, quite a cool experience to while away a few hours um, a day. Um, and now next up, we have um, something uh, perhaps a little bit different for you. Um, and that is, uh, well, BBC Radio 3 are also contributing to the efforts to keep um, quarantine folks at home company through the uh, Cross Arts Cross platform called BBC Arts um, so the Cross Arts Cross platform BBC Arts Festival called Culture in Quarantine Um, and one of the highlights of this virtual festival is Max Richter's Sleep. Um, Now you might be wondering why we're talking about sleeping uh, but this is an eight hour lullaby for a frenetic world as they call it, uh, which the BBC describes as 
offering music for the mind in the time of lockdown and part of their slow and mindful series. Um, so this eight hour offering hopes to unite quarantine nations across the world in a search for sleep and moments of meditative stillness. I am already sold. Yes, I know. I, I feel like I, I, where has this been all my life? I know. <laughs> so a little bit of history on this eight hour epic performance as reported in the BBC. So in September 2015, the composer Max Richter was joined by a group of musicians to perform the world premiere of a new work but this was a concert with a difference for a start the show began at midnight and it lasted for the whole eight hours mm -hmm. so yes this was the premiere of sleep that monumental experimental work designed to accompany listeners on a journey through different states of consciousness so the entire thing was performed for a live audience of sleeping listeners and uh, and was broadcasted on radio three in what is still the longest single continuous music broadcast the bbc has ever made yes and almost straight away listeners wherever they were um you know started sharing their emotions their thoughts their experiences with with this work. Um, one person likened listening to the piece, um, you know, while under her duvet in the pitch darkness as being in an oral cocoon. Um, and, you know, it was almost tearful from the whole experience. Others called the experience and the music insanely beautiful or the richest musical experience they had ever had. This just sounds more and more fascinating. Uh, <laughs> um, Radio 3's eight-hour live broadcast broke two Guinness World Records for the longest broadcast of a single piece of music and the longest live broadcast of a single piece of music. Mm -hmm. So Sleep was composed in consultation with famed American neuroscientist David Eagleman as Max Richter wanted to learn about how the brain functions during sleep. So Max said that sleeping is one of the most important things we all do. We spend a third of our lives asleep and it's always been one of my favourite things <laughs> ever since I was a child. For me, um, sleep is uh, his work. Sleep is an attempt to see how that space when your conscious mind is on a holiday uh, can be a place for music to live. So Sleep received wide acclaim from contemporary music critics. Grayson Haver Curran of Pitchfork Media gave the album a positive review stating, at its best, Sleep feels like compositionally rigorous new age music. It's a place in which you can settle for a while with or without a pillow and emerge only when you're ready to rejoin the rest of world. He also described the work as a slow motion electronics and chamber ensemble hybrid meant to reinforce and reflect natural sleep cycles. So Max Richter himself described it as an invitation to dream and here's a uh, short clip of him uh, reflecting on that work with London-based director Edward Pagenton. I think sleep is one of the most interesting things we do. It feels like a kind of a reservoir. It's an unknown space to some extent. There are certain bits of sleep which are mostly concerned with information structuring, turning short-term memory into knowledge. Sleep is a project I've been thinking about since kind of the mid-90s. We live in a very dense information environment, kind of a blizzard really of data. Sleep is intended really as a kind of great big pause in that process. I wanted to make a piece which had the feeling of a landscape, something which you could inhabit, something which you could walk around in mentally. It's a very low information environment. There's a lot of redundancy in it. It's a variation form. So you kind of know where you are a lot of the time. And you get a sense of the familiar and encountering things that you recognize. Uh, for me, that was very important because I, I felt like, you know, if I'm sleeping through a piece, I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I want to know where I am. You know? 
And that sense of recognition and, you know, sort of home, in a way, is sort of embedded quite deeply in the piece. I personally really enjoy the experience of listening to music which has enough space in it to be able to think about the piece. And so sleep is like that. You can sort of curate it to yourself while it's actually happening. So after its landmark premiere in London, Sleep has since been performed around the world in a variety of venues, including the Sydney Opera House, the Grand Park in Los Angeles, um, Kraftwerk Berlin, the Philharmonie de Paris, and even at the Great Wall of China. So just a little bit more about Max Richter. So he is considered one of the most influential figures on the contemporary music scene. He's produced groundbreaking work as a composer, pianist, recording artist, and collaborator. So he's best known for his genre defying solo albums, including Sleep, and he has also written extensively for film and television. So the documentary Max Richter's Sleep, which actually tells which tells the story behind the composer's landmark nocturnal work, that premiered last November at the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam. So Sleep actually might just be the apt soundtrack for these times of lockdown, right? When mm. hours seemingly stretch into the distance. Um, sleep hopefully offers a mindful way to forget everything that's going on around us and to enter uh, into another world. So speaking about this current free streaming of the piece, Max Richter said, five years ago, I wrote Sleep as an invitation to pause our busy lives for a moment. Now we are all facing an unexpected and involuntary pause. It is far from easy to adjust to this new normal, which shifts continuously and brings anxiety and suffering to those we love and to ourselves. At such times, the magical ability of creativity to elevate our days and to connect us is more important than ever. Please enjoy this eight-hour place to rest. How beautiful is that? It is. So... You know, if you're wondering, should you use sleep as directed as, quote-unquote, a landscape where people could fall asleep? Or should you sit, sit upright and let the beguiling music ease your daylight hours? Or can you actually do both? Mm -hmm. So the reviewer from Pitchfork magazine wrote that, if you listen while you're awake, many of these pieces conjure dreamy states where ideas seem fluid and flexible and the world around you seems somehow softer. Mm. Hmm. I... I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure what I would, um, how I would consume this, because a part of me really wants to listen to the whole thing. Although eight hours is a long time, yes. Um, because it's it's beautiful. The parts I've heard, because I haven't heard the whole thing consistently, the parts I've heard are beautiful. They actually change. Um, you know, the, the first couple of, uh, the opening is different. Towards the middle, it gets uh, more complex. It changes in tone, but. At the same time, I kind of want to know what it feels like to fall asleep to this. Hmm. So I, I must admit, I haven't listened to his work, but it's it's really interesting. I do I do sort of uh, enjoy listening to sounds. I find that sounds like this help to calm me down, whether it is during the day or even when I'm trying to sleep. So it, it definitely sounds interesting that something that's eight hours long mm -hmm. is available and maybe something for us to try during those sleepless nights when, you know, the, the time blurs and you don't know which day of the MCO it is anymore. Well, and I suppose with the abundance of time that we have, we could do uh, two listenings of it, one awake and one asleep. <laughs> That's right. Although my issue tends to be that I feel like I might fall asleep even though I intend to stay awake. <laughs> just um, because of how the music is. Yes, and... Um, also, that's the thing, right? Nobody really just listens to music anymore. You tend mm. to put music on and do other things. That's right. So I feel like this is an opportunity to go back to the old way of listening to music where you have something playing and you 
sit down and listen and rather than sort of cook or exercise yes. while the music is going on. Mm. Well, if you're keen to try it out, asleep or awake, you know, do head over to BBC Radio 3's website and search for Max Richter's Sleep. It's available for free until the 12th of May. Uh, so that's it from us today. If you have ideas um, that you'd like to share with us that we can check out online, you can tweet us at BFM Radio. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or you can message us on Facebook. We are BFM The Bigger Picture. And if you've missed any part of today's show, you can download the podcast on bfm.my, on the BFM app or on Spotify. Coming up at 1pm, as uh, always, we have the Midday Music Machine to take you through your lunch hour. Uh, and we will leave you now with an excerpt from one of the pieces of Max Richter's Sleep called Nor Earth, Nor Boundless Sea on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.